You got till 310. Give me one second. Okay, we're here, we're live, and we're talking to the wonderful Brittany King. Woo! All right. Uh, so I already said your name, so let's just skip that. Mm -hmm. um, how are you doing today? Today, I'm very grounded. I'm usually high off of caffeine because I usually try to get, well, I had coffee this morning, but it wasn't a whole cup because I made TJ split with me. So I'm actually in a neutral place today. That's cool. <laughs> That's very cool. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about you. I know that you are a mother, you're an advocate, and you are a disability rights activist. Tell us more about you. Okay. So let's take it from the top. I have three brothers. And because I wasn't as athletic as my brothers, I tried out for basketball, but I kept jamming my, jamming my fingers because I have small hands. So instead, I was put into ballet. And I found out that the ballet company that was at the Park District that I started balleting in was in my high school that I went to. So when I went to high school, I tried out for the dance troupe team. I didn't get in the first year, so I tried out again the second year. So instead, I did a bunch of, like, theater stuff because I wasn't sporty, so I didn't do basketball. I didn't do volleyball, like, none of that. Because, first of all, I'm short. My mom's short. My dad's short. I didn't really have a standard chance. So I did the plays all four years, and then I did the dance troupe three years after freshman year. And then, oh, my best friend actually lives around the corner or down the street from Access Living. So, and I didn't find out until after my stroke happened when I went to college in my second year. So having a stroke rendered me disabled. And so after that, I found out that Access Living was down the street. The Empower Fifi's actually came out to do a presentation at the time when I was inpatient. And I was getting ready to um, graduate out of the inpatient session and go home, which I wasn't really interested in sitting in the hospital and doing therapy at 6 a.m. Because I'm, my life was more active before my stroke, and I just didn't want to sit around and bullshit till I was called upon by a therapist. So I said, bye, guys. And then I got into the Fifi group. And then I got back into school because I was like, school is the only thing I know at this point. I got to get back to school. And in being in school, I joined the Fifi group because I was doing school at community college and it helped that I was off on Fridays, which were Fifi meeting days. And so that's how I got into activism and access living. Wow. So much to cover right there. So <laughs> many areas to cover. Um, talk to us, talk to us, how was your life before the stroke? Oh, before my stroke, I was very, 
closed-minded, I think, and narrow-minded as to like, I'm just going to finish school. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to make money and live and die. That was my only goal when I before my stroke. I think after stroke, I got to sit back and reevaluate my goals because I at the time I was in school to be a teacher. So I had my teaching. I was in for my teaching certificate and associates. And then when I came back home, I actually finished my teaching degree at Truman. But then it was in the student teaching service hours that we had to do that I realized, like, this is too much for my now disabled body and my mental as being a person or not a victim, but like as being a survivor of a stroke, it was just too much. So I got to reassess what I wanted to do with my life, which was the activism role. So it kind of worked out in that I got a chance to reevaluate versus I think that if I didn't have a stroke, I would be stuck as a teacher in the climate that is COVID-19 and miserable and upset and just frustrated. So I think God did it for a reason. So I could reevaluate, like just going this narrow path, like there's different ways to get to the end point. And I think I had to be, I think I needed to be seated or kind of leveled out to figure that out. Okay. Did it, did it take you a long time to uh, adjust or to get, like the question I was asking earlier to TJ is how long did it take you to accept your disability and embrace it, you know, for who you are today? Okay, I think that my stroke happened in September. October, I was back in Chicago at RIC, which is now Shirley Ryan. And because I decided that I wanted to go back to school, I did spent three months inpatient and I decided, okay, I can give myself these three months because I know that I want to be in school for the spring semester. And that was because I set that goal. I decided within myself that I could take this whole three month of time to be sad and depressed. But when I get to school and whatever lies beyond inpatient therapy i need to get my shit together and be neutral and not this depressed sad rain cloud i have to find the cloudiness and let the cat clouds lift so i think three months was more than enough time for me to be in that depressed situation because i was also on medications antidepressants at the time so I think when even when I came home after the holidays, I was trying to get off of all these medications because I wasn't used to medications before stroke outside of like multivitamins. But I wasn't trying to take seven pills every day for the rest of my life. So I think in that being out in the real world or like doing actions and things with the Fifi group, I was put in a different mindset so that I was like, all right, this is oh, also. When I was outpatient, there was a situation that happened because most old people have strokes. Usually most most of the people who have strokes are usually older folks, at least at that time when I was in the hospital. So there was a guy in the outpatient facility that I was at. And he said, Brittany, because he saw he could see and sense how frustrated I was with this disabled state. 
And so he said, Brittany, this is the new you. You need to love her and get used to her because she's not going anywhere for a while. And I think that was the click moment of like, whoa, let's see what I can do in this physical body of like limitations and all. And so I think there was also another incident after that conversation. I was heading to school from Lakeview to Uptown. And there was a guy who stopped me on my way to school. And he said, don't you know that if you pray to God, he could fix you in an instant? And that's all you need to do. And I think, and it was, I, I can say for 100% certainty that I didn't reply to this guy. It was like a divine thing. But my response was, there is a reason that I am in this state. And there are people that I will be able to reach out to being in this state as I am right now. And I said, I, I am letting God show me why and where that leads me. And so that's why I kind of dismissed him. It was like, okay, I understand that I can pray probably to make it better. But if it's not supposed to be better because there's a lesson in this time, then I need to learn that. And so I think kind of what you were talking to TJ about with this whole church, because I started the choir after I was out of therapy. I started choir and I was in the Fifi group and I was- Wait, 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 wait. You can uh, sing? Yes. <laughs> I, I can hold a note. I can hold many notes. Ah, okay. I know Aretha Franklin. I know Alicia Keys, but I can hold a note at the very mm -hmm. least. Okay. So go ahead. You were you were talking before and I interrupted you. Oh, so this whole idea that the church, like you can pray it away or like, it was just horrible. I didn't like that dynamic. And I think that's the reason that I stayed with my church at the time because the pastor at the church that I was in was my pediatrician. And so he had a way of viewing things that was different from any other pastor that I've met. And I was biased because he was my pediatrician. So I was like, I'm staying here with Doc, and this is where it's at. Plus, I also fell in love with the church choir originally. Before I even realized that he was the pastor, I fell in love with the choir at Apostolic Faith, a.k.a. AFC. So that was the motivation to stay in church. And then because I fell in love with the choir, after my stroke, I was introduced to the young adult choir, and I joined that after my stroke. And I had a lot of love and joy in that and my connection to God and my faith got stronger because of that. But then there was this factor of my limitation and performances. Cause when you perform at church, we were doing all three services back to back at the time. So you had to go here, go eat breakfast, come back for the next service, go take a chill pill, come back for it. And that back and forth was a lot on my body, especially with the limited mobility that was new to me, but that also kind of made me stronger. So it's a bittersweet situation. But he also accepted the fact that I didn't feel like I needed to be cured or fixed to be part of the church. And I appreciate appreciated that aspect of that. However, yeah, so that's all within the span of before I got pregnant. Then I got pregnant and I felt like there's no space at the church for unwed mothers to be. I felt some type of way. I think maybe that was just internalized. But I feel like, okay, I don't have space to be on to be performing. And then I'm unwed 
And then I know what the church says about that. Like, I just felt conflicted internally. And so I decided to pull out of the church. Well, at least AFC. And I joined another church. And they were more liberal and inclusive of this new space I was in with being a mother, not married to Gregory. But also he was along for the ride, whatever that looked like. And then after, like, I left Gregory, they, we still are in strong communication now. And actually, I am on the way to being on their pastoral board. So there was a lot to do, or there was more to do in the new church than at AFC. Because I felt like I just lost out because I was pregnant and I didn't have a husband. And that's not to say I couldn't got a husband, but I wasn't looking for a husband at AFC. And so I didn't feel like I fit, so I kind of dismissed myself because there was nowhere for me to feel inclusive and welcome like I did at Access Living or in my advocacy realm. Talk, talk to us about your disability and how people perceive you, you know, in the sense that some people accept your disability, some people are just like looking at, look, give you looks. Mm-hmm. You can't really see my disability unless I'm coming towards you or walking away from you. So even on like public transportation, if I'm sitting and there's an elderly coming on the bus, I get dirty looks about like, come on, young lady, get up and let the old lady sit down. And I'm like, I'm probably about as unbalanced as she is. So I'm just going to sit here. And so I think I was angry a lot in the beginning. And then I had, I felt like I had to explain to people like I'm also disabled, but then it was also comedy for me because then I would get up and then you can see that my left hand is at my side and not hanging down. And so they just shut up quickly. So it was more comedy for me for people to try to. I like how people try to assume that you're not disabled. And then when you stand to present your disability, it's a whole like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And an apologetic and too much. I didn't. Yeah, it's a thing. Also, though, I felt like. I didn't limit myself to my disability, so no one else did. For example, like doing performances at church, they didn't want to offer an accommodation for like allowing extra time if I didn't speak up. And that kind of empowered me to speak up for myself. So like if I did not need that extra time, I said, okay, can you guys sing and I'll answer from the back or put me in the back so that I can catch up and be there with you guys when I'm short. So I was usually in the front. But I didn't have to speak up because they didn't see it as a limitation if I didn't see it. And I appreciated that about AFC. And what else? Disability. Disability for me, especially in the beginning, was more of a you have to laugh at yourself to get past the depressing part of my life has been changed and how will I do this and how will I do that also family dynamics change because I had a boyfriend at the time I was going to go visit him in Carbondale while I went to school and my mom's sentiment was you shouldn't go visit because you can't even get yourself dressed and my rebuttal to that was well if he's taking off the clothes then he can help me put the clothes back on so I'm going to go visit and I ended up going to visit him because I'm just that Stubborn. Oh, I know. <laughs> I, I know for a fact. You don't got to tell me that. 
Yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, talk to me about Brittany, the mother. Ooh, babies. Oh, yeah. So Gregory, hmm. Gregory is Lauren's dad, and he was very suave. He was very smooth when we met, and I like that. But Oh, Gregory. So Gregory gave me the option. He said, Brittany, do you want me to wrap up when we have sex? Because we were open with our sexuality, whatever. And he's in a chair. And I didn't think anything of it. But I said, so I, I put it on him. I said, you know the repercussions of not having a condom. So you make the decisions because you know what's coming if we don't have a condom. And so he made the decision to not have a condom. Thus, Lauren was born. But it was really weird because he was excited when we found out. And then when I went to go get, um, oh, so when I went to go see a doctor about, okay, so when I went to go see a doctor about the pregnancy and then like carrying through the pregnancy, he, he changed because originally we went to like a clinic, I think it was Planned Parenthood. And he said, well, Brittany, oh, we saw her heartbeat flickering which was at the time she was only a few weeks cooking and you only see the flickering light. And so we had discussed before the appointment that if there was no presence of a baby or like it was minimal, we would abort. And so I said, okay, whatever. I didn't think anything of her. I said, okay, that's an option. And I put it at the back of my mind. But then after we saw the flicker of her heartbeat, he said, well, Brittany, let's be realistic. Because I said, oh, yeah. Oh, yes. The, the coordinator who I spoke with or the attendant I spoke with talked to me separate from Gregory at that time. Because we were like, all right, just abort. It's just a flicker of light. And so she actually had a one-on-one -on -one with me at that in the meeting, in the appointment, and said, there are more benefits than not than disadvantages to having a baby and i was unprepared i was still living at home with mom and i was like i don't know what to do i don't know how to have a baby and regulate and do all the things that i want to do travel and do more school whatever so i was concerned and so she i she kind of sensed that concern for me and gregory because we already had our mind made up when we walked in there but then she brought it down to a spiritual level and said that, well, at the end of your days, when you're talking to God, it's just you and God, and he asks you about this situation, how will you feel about saying that, oh, I just wasn't ready at the time? Like, how could you justify that? And so she got it to my mind like that, and that made my mind take like, oh, she's right. Let's make it work. Because I know my mom had me and my three brothers and she decided to just take care of us herself outside of her, outside of the fathers in the situation. And we all have different dads. So I said, I've seen many women do it without the help of a man. And also I knew a disabled couple. Well, the, the wife is disabled and she raised me and my brothers and her kids. So I said, I am more than ready to do this step and so I decided to tell Gregory I said sweetheart this is happening because of my relation to God and like what I just had this connection with this lady that I didn't even know and she knew how to break it down for me so I appreciated her support and insight to that 
Because if it was, if I didn't have her, I wouldn't have had Lauren. And so I told Gregory, I said, sweetheart, you can stay or you can go. Either way, I'm going to figure it out. And he was like, no, I want to be in my baby's life. So I said, okay, then we're going to work it out. And so Gregory was there for the process of trying to fend me up. And then being in the hospital room for Lauren. And then we heard her first cry. And it was all over after that. She's just a hot mess and love all in one. And I don't regret any decision that I made in that whole process because because of how it happened really. So now, okay, before she was little, okay. So me and Gregory moved in together the month before she was born. So when she was born, I sleep really hard. Unless you're in close, close proximity to me, I can't hear or nothing. There's no, I can't sense or hear anything. So Lauren had her own room. We got upgraded to the two bedroom. And so Gregory was really upset with me originally because I couldn't hear Lauren crying in the middle of the night. So he was up making bottles and making sure she was okay. And he was kind of upset with me about like, Brittany, you're not connecting with your daughter in the middle of the night or because I'm a day person. If I'm up during the day, Lauren had all my attention. At night when I'm asleep, I'm asleep. So Gregory, you handle that. You figure that out. And he was so upset with me about it. And I said, well, this is what it is. You take it or leave it. And I think all that warned him because he wasn't used to responsibility. And I think that's essentially what led to our domestic altercation that we had, which caused me to move back in with my mom two years ago now. So I... Oh, so now, oh, so after we left, well, yeah, after I took Lauren and came to my mom's house, I had to change my mindset of, okay, Gregory just needs to provide for Lauren. And that's all I really needed from him originally, because I had it in my mind that if Gregory decided he wanted to leave, I was going to take care of Lauren by myself. So I was already ready for that option. And so in that, I felt like being a mother was easier for me now that I was detached from this person because then my, all my focus is only on her. So I got her into the school that, or into the daycare now. And all he does is pick her up. Well, not all he does, but he picks her up from school. After I take her to school, he picks her up and brings her home. And then we do it all over again every day of the week. And then on weekends, he grabs her too when he can. So that's motherhood in a nutshell. I got a lot of support. So it's not really difficult. Wow. Now, Brittany, I know you're working on many projects besides being a mother. <laughs> so talk to me about those projects because you are an amazing person. Oh, yeah, we do have a lot coming up. So when I was in the Fifi group, I was, I was. And you got to talk to me about that Fifi group because, you know, I know them, but the people out yeah. there may not know them. Okay, the Empowered Fifis of Chicago is an uh, advocacy and support group for women with disabilities. And they came out, they reached, well, yeah, so they presented themselves to me when I was inpatient doing therapy. And so when I left after the, in December, when I, after I'd finished my three months of inpatient, I decided while I was going to school with my Fridays off, I would go to the Fifi meetings. And so the leader at the time or the coordinator at the time 
highlighted my leadership and I got put in leadership roles in, within the group so that when she, okay, so when that coordinator, her name was Kim, her name is Kim, she's still alive, she's not gone, but Kim, when Kim stepped away for health reasons, we brought in the intern that we had previously, and so because I was in close connection with Kim and the leadership aspect, Falani took to me for the leadership and direction for the meet. So I was kind of in this co-coordinator position. And then when Falani left, I was, I just took up the reins and kept going. And I asked the girls, I said, we can either forget these meetings or we can all step up and maintain the meetings. And that was last year. And they said, oh, well, oh, we had all decided that there was no space for women with disabilities to come and commune the way that we did. Um, so we decided to upkeep the group and I wasn't paid. I wasn't getting money or funding or benefits. I wasn't getting anything out of the leadership that I stepped up to in the past, last year, and now rolling over into this year. I'm not being paid for the work that I do, but I felt like I deserved, or not deserved, but I felt like because the group found me in my most depressive time of like sadness and just despair, it felt like, and helped me to be a leader, I felt like I owed it to the group to maintain that. And then this year, actually, we were, um, so another coordinator at Access Living, the art coordinator at Access Living reached to us about like, getting on board with the art projects that they have going on and they had funding. And I said, sure, I'm not doing it for money, but if you want to give me money, I'm not going to say no. So that's how we got re-emerged this year. Wow. And you're working on projects right now? Yes. Right now we have, so within the group right now we're working, we are, we will be doing a sip and paint event at the end yeah at the end of march i think externally we are open to looking for things but right now we're just keeping it internal and internally getting stronger and building ourselves and creating this foundation and we're not really expanding outside yet but we're open to being outside of internal stuff but we're also trying to figure out if excess living wants to still house us because then I get a spot at the table and I get money in my bank. So we, they're deciding internally whether or not to have the Fifi's under their umbrella versus like this not-for-profit free fall we're doing right now. And I told them either way, I have no problem looking for funding and being represented independent of Access Living. But I know because we were birthed out of Access Living, I wanted to give them that option to give us a seat at the table. Okay. And um, so there, there are people out there. It's actually, there's a few people watching you. So you got, you got a few words for them? Who's watching? I'm not, uh, I don't know who's watching. I just know that there's, there's people watching. So you got words for them right now of encouragement or? Oh, yeah. I thought you meant like, should I plug my information? I didn't. I didn't. 
No, 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 no. Um, so, like, where do you see yourself? First of all, where do you see yourself 10 years from now? 10 years. Ooh, I'm going to run for presidency in eight years. Mm. So 10 years, I see myself as president. President King. Hey. Hmm. <laughs> yes. Cool. That sounds pretty cool. President King. Wow. Um, so you have very, very much uh, know where you want to go 10 years from now. Yes, I'm on a path. Within, I feel like right now, because of the, okay, so because of the redirect that happened after my stroke, I'm on a different path. I wasn't into politics with like in the student body in high school because I was so focused on enjoying my life of like dance and theater because that's what I like to do. I like to perform. And then again, with like the choirs at church. So I think that in my performing, in my enjoyment of my childhood in the performing aspect, right now it's time as an adult to do some more certified official things. And I appreciated this redirect. So when I see God, I'll see, okay, that was a fun run. Can we do it again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, how do you manage time between the things you do and taking care of Lauren? I think setting up your schedule in a timely fashion. So I feel like when I'm not in a meeting, I eat or I clean up. So I think just scheduling your time accordingly. Also having a support system. So sometimes when I'm not at home to clean up, my mom will put the laundry away that I forgot about last week or she'll fold it. So like having a good support system is essential and crucial to making it as a person with a disability, even living at home. But then like after you move out and have your own place, having a PA or a husband to help you is essential too. Cause I know some relationships personally of people who have become disabled and their spouse has gone left and like unsupportive and just a horrible place to space to be in. And so I think managing and maintaining a supportive system is essential for living a fruitful life as a person with a disability, whether you're a mother or just a single. Um, what would you tell young, young ladies out there that are in your situation or similar? I think that because my disability happened to me and wasn't, something I grew up with, be in the know of what's going on politically, for sure. Because I think that that whole, I don't appreciate that I didn't have access or education on disability because that would have changed my whole mentality coming into disability. So I would really say educate yourself before something happens because there's very much this idea that disability is inevitable. And I feel like we as leaders are paving the way so that when 
God forbid, Lauren has a disability in her future, she can look at my life and say, oh, I can do this. She did it. And so I like being that role model. And if you need help, reaching out to people is what you can do. Okay. And don't be afraid to ask questions. There's no such thing as a stupid question, except for the question that you don't ask, because then you still don't know. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to say to people? No, I think that's it. Okay. Reach out. I'm here for you. This is what I'm hopefully getting paid to do soon. <laughs> cool. All right. See you in a few. Okay. Thank you, Chewy. Thank you. Bye. Bye. <laughs>